Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse, along with Kevin Dietz. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. This is our first. We're going to be doing a part two today. We have oh, Kenny, Kenny Wadenko back on our show. This time he is being joined by one of his jurors, Jerry Innes. And what's fascinating to me as a trial lawyer for almost 30 years, number one, you don't usually get to talk to many jurors after a civil case especially a criminal case, especially mm -hmm. after a conviction. So it's rare. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen. And so I'm interested to talk to uh, Jerry about his experience on this panel. And now that he knows the truth, uh, how he feels about what happened and what happened in that jury room. So without further delay, Let's bring Kenny and Jerry on to the show. Joining us this morning is Mike Morse, Detroit's top attorney. Mike Morse. Mike Morse is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. Yeah, adapt and adapt and change things up a little bit every year. Hi, gentlemen. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm Hello, good. Kevin, how are you? Hey, welcome guys. back, Kenny, and welcome, Jerry, to the show. Um... You know, Kenny, since we talked last, I cannot get you out of my mind. I have been reading uh, countless articles about you. I've been seeing all your interviews. I've been looking at the Court of Appeals records, um, the opinions, the uh, Mr. McCormick, the snitches, affidavit uh, to the court talking about uh, Linda Davis and uh, de the detectives' wrongful actions I get angrier and angrier every single time uh, I think about it, I read about it. Uh, this is such an open and shut case of uh, a misidentification, uh, DNA evidence, the whole thing. Uh, so I'm really interested today to talk to, the, to one of the jurors. Um, I assume, Jerry, there were 12 of you uh, in the box that day. Is that true? Um, there was 14, so they had okay. two alternative jurors, and um, once we went to deliberations, they picked two, how I, they did that, I don't know, they dismissed those two, and uh, I was left with, with uh, to be one of the 12. Was this the first time uh, on, jury, on jury duty for yourself? Yeah, correct. Um, so I was a younger person then, obviously, as Ken was, um, and... Um, I was looking forward to taking jury duty. I thought I would, I was a CPA, I'd been a CPA in Mount Clemens for perhaps 10 years before this. And I felt I'd be a real good person in a contract case or some type of civil case. Um, I certainly was not prepared to be on a criminal case. So you went through this, you went through the process, the, the prosecutor and the defense attorney asked you questions and you qualified to sit on this jury and you sat for a five day jury trial. And, you know, it's going to be hard to separate the two, but I, I have to ask you, during this trial, you, I mean, you voted, there was no doubt in your mind that Kenny was guilty of this crime. Is that true? Um, Beyond a reasonable I'm doubt. Back. I'm going back 25 years or so in my memory, but what um, occurred to me is, you go in thinking you're going to have absolute metaphysical certainty and you come up with D 
defects in this. And so um, eventually I picked him and I thought he was guilty. And I, for the forever, I never questioned whether we sent an innocent man to jail or not. I and never all, followed up on and, it. And I all 12 it. of you thought that way. Yeah, so it was an honest deliberation. I know when I talked to the author, Bob Hennigy, he had heard rep, um, rumors that maybe there's something um, not above board in a jury room, but it really, we had a good jury foreman and um, we deliberated and I, I felt we put things out. There's certain defects in our jury system that you can't know about unless you go through there. For example, um, we asked a number of questions, you know, for, you could request um, evidence to physically examine. There was really not much there, but there was some. Um, you could request definitions of statements. And I think we did request the definition of certain doubt, things like that, definitional things. And it's just, they just read back what they said in the court. So it really mm -hmm. gave you nothing more. And so you're left with this diverse group of people uh, the, just come from every walk of life, every educational background, having to agree on some philosophical terms like absolute certainty, right, and and guilt and things like that. That after the fact, I think it's really hard to absent well, a smoking, gun, you know, really hard evidence. I think you're in a very subjective thing. Well, the the standard of the standard to convict is not absolute confidence or whatever you just said. It's, right. beyond, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Want to go too far off track, but um, one thing I would say about Ken's case, and I would say this about other cases where other, yeah, other cases where we can't talk about them. If it's a case where someone stole the purse or punched a person at a bar, you don't get emotionally attached. This was a rape crime. Seven jurors were women, five were men. These were not things, conversations men, and men have conversations talking about rape in detail and talking about that. And they certainly don't have it with women. These are just not something. And I don't think what we were as open yeah, and I felt we did. We discussed everything as openly as fair, and we did have a good jury for a person. But um, it, it, they're just things on the fringes, and this could be a, a matter of racial justice or, or um, child abuse. Things that are so hot wired that it's hard to communicate because these are outside the fringes of our society. Did you ever change the jury foreman, or did you have the same one throughout the whole trial? You had the same one. Jerry, what was your impression of uh, Prosecutor Davis throughout the trial? You know, I I tell you, I have I, you probably don't know about this because I don't think it was in um, Bob's book or came out, but um, I have certain connections with some of these people later on. It turned out, but um, I was very impressed with Davis, and I was impressed with Austin, and I was impressed with the first police officer at the trial. But man, was I ever ignorant! Okay, what an ignorant person I was. And, um, but I was impressed with Davis. And he came across, um, but what you don't recognize is a, a person at jury or even a person in Kenny's position is 
a prosecutor has so many more tools than a defense attorney. And I understand Ken did not have a competent defense attorney, um, but they actually are very scientific in picking of the jury and very science, and they get feedback on the jury where a defense attorney does not get that. They get to go back and ask, or they will take advantage of it. Why this? Why that? Why did you vote that? And they can talk people, and people want to talk to prosecutors, especially, um, you know, just do it. People want to talk about this experience. And so they get a feedback loop where the defense attorneys don't get a feedback loop on um, what they're doing. So they have so much more information. And they, and they did a lot of manipulative tricks in the jury trial that I didn't even realize until I saw the documentary. Which, was, there, was there any discussion uh, in the jury room how bad Kenny's lawyer was? No, we didn't know that. And we could not know that. Okay. So let me, let me just say, just take five seconds to go back. So I'm a CPA and I had an accounting firm at that time in downtown Mount Clemens. Right. And I had worked in downtown Mount Clemens since the mid 80s, probably not more than 200 yards away from the courthouse. All right. So I, I, I would walk up and down those streets every day, go out to get lunch, go to the, go to the restaurants. Now. Um, about two years after. Um, two years after the trial, I was walking down Main Street. And I bumped into the attorney, was it Orlowski or something? I don't remember his name. Markowski. Um, Markowski? Okay. So I, I talked to him. I said, hey, man, you were, um, I was on that jury trial that you did. And we sat and we talked in front of uh, that Coney Island there for probably 15 minutes, right? And I remember joking. I thought he was good. I go, man, uh, how'd you do that? I said, next time I murder somebody, I was joking, like, I will, I'll have you defend me. I think you did a good job. And he, and what he told me that I found um, troubling at that time was he had told me that he got a phone call the Thursday before the trial started. So trial started on Monday with the jury pick and he got a call the Thursday night notifying that he was going to get the trial assigned to him. And he got the trial assigned to him that Friday. And I remember even then at time, I'm not that smart about legal procedures or completely ignorant about legal procedures. And I said, how could you do that? How could you go to trial on a Monday when you just got the case on a Friday? Wouldn't the judge let you take take time to review the case? And he goes, no, they weren't. The judge said I had to go. And so I was walking back to my office at time and go, oh, my gosh, this guy was learning about the evidence the same time the jury was. He, there's no way if you get assigned a case at Friday morning that you can go through a complex case and read the files, read the testimony, look at the evidence, talk to your client and represent them with any hope on a Monday. So the fix was in there. And I became aware of that two years after the trial. And, but there was nothing you could do. You, there was nothing. Well, you I didn't did. even know that. I there's there's you don't understand. Like say, these were a pretty good jury. It's a jury a jury here. It's like when when you got called there, um, there were certain things I thought weird. It was on the fifth floor of the court building, and um, these are just like anyone in your neighborhood walking down the street. It was fairly representative of the 
community, but people tended to be older and they tended to be whiter and they tended to be middle class. There's no wealthy people there, no poor people there. It's just all basically middle age, uh, you know, middle class people. I was selected after we, we deliberated, the judge came back, Linda Davis came back and Tom Austin came back. And, um, one of the questions I asked in a jury trial, there was 14 people selected. Only two of us had any college background, me and one of the alternative jurors that had dismissed. And I asked Linda Davis, I said, why did you pick me? I mean, no one else has gone to college here. Why did you even pick me to be on this, this trial? And she goes, um, you're married, you have two children, you, you own a house, and you have a brother as police officers. All those things are pro-prosecutorial. And I remember I was immediately impressed with her when she said that. I said, she was paying attention, man. That was like two months before, a month before. So she was picking for the jury, the juror that were going to be pro-conviction, which would make sense. Any prosecutor would do that. Where was the defense attorney there to keep people off their pro-prosecution? I don't remember anybody being discharged by the defense attorney. There, there probably was, but um, I was picked to be on the jury because I was perceived as being pro Well, you're, uh, a, good, you're a good conservative person right. who, you know, I didn't know your brother was a police officer, but that helps. I would have kicked you if I was a criminal defense attorney because you're going to believe the cops because your brother's a cop and you love your brother and you trust your brother. So cops don't lie in your mind. Well, you know, uh, I, I, there's, there's, it's, it's worse than you believe. Like I, like I know you've watched the documentary now. And what I would say about this um, case, the documentary is excellent. And uh, the only defect I have in the documentary doesn't mention Bob Hennigy who wrote the book that really laid this stuff out. But the documentary is only probably 10% of the crimes against Ken. Okay, probably only 10%. And if they put in all the, the, tr the total dirt, no one would believe it. It's hard enough to believe as it is. And it's 10%. Well, right. Like, like, like take the ID, for example. I mean, how, how screwed up and messed up and, and, and illegal and unconstitutional that lineup was so let's take that since that's one of the the key things that you guys heard about um i mean was that a big factor in your deliberations that she was you able know, to pick them out i don't really recall i i don't recall all the evidence and how much it weighted out i remember some things being made big deals of that i personally didn't weigh out things but then um one thing i didn't re recognize how manipulated it was until after I watched the documentary. And I'll go through that because this would be relevant to your work as a trial attorney anyway, you know. But um, the people like um, Glenn McCormick, right? Um, well, did you, did you believe about, that? Did you believe that piece of crap when he was talking? No, no, no. I, I looked at that guy and said, man, he's a drug addict. He's, I, I grew up in Detroit. There's many tragic people like that. And um, I took what he said, and they made a connection that only two people knew what, the, what happened in this scene, the victim and the criminal, and 
how did Glenn McCormick know this? He must have heard it from the criminal that did this, and Kenny was a criminal. But you know what? If you look at that, that jailhouse snitch, that should be a foghorn goes out in every courtroom with everything. If you look later, I have a client that's a prominent retired Detroit attorney. And when I was telling him about Kenny's case, he goes, man, you got to read that book by um, John Grisham. He uh, did an exoneration. Very, very, very similar case. It's a pattern. It's a cliche. So if you start seeing these cliche setups, all these pattern setups, you've seen that as a judge. And most judges are pro-prosecutorial. Almost all judges come from the prosecutor's side. They only get judges, and Linda Davis can judge because she ran so many people into the ground. I got so many convictions. We have a very biased system that's not fair anyway. That's a side. So Glenn McCormick, I disproved. I found the witness. She was obviously a victim. She was a very compelling person. I found the first police officer at the trial, just the very competent man. All he did was um, take the initial report and call that, you know. Um, Kathy Witcher was came across. They coached her, but let me let me. That's the ex-girlfriend, right? The Kathy yeah, Witcher's the ex-girlfriend. Through some of the um, the defects. Okay, I I felt like the um, they made a big deal about Kenny's DNA because you mentioned that. No, why no DNA was found in the in the body. No DNA was there. So. You'll see in the testimony about Linda Davidson, I don't think that there was, I knew anything about DNA, about cigarettes, about that. That's what she says in the documentary, right? Why would the, why would the state crime lab make so much evidence on the lack of DNA? That was coached. So Kathy Davis, I believe, would have had to know about before. You know, why would Tom Olson not have her underwear tested for DNA? You know, why would they exclude some of DNA? So that whole excuse there that they didn't know about DNA was there. I, I personally believe that the Michigan State Crime Lab was complicit in setting up Kenny. My, That's my uh, personal uh, beliefs. Mike, can I say this? Yeah. Okay. First of all, a couple, I'm going to touch on, hit on a couple issues. Jail snitches, number one. They're involved in 38% of the wrongful convictions. Um, and as you well know, I mentioned this last week, I've been doing this now for almost 17 years, helping free other innocent men and women and reform our judicial system. Um, in my opinion, snitches are profes paid professional liars. Okay, and if you look at at uh, many of the cases, not only here in Michigan but throughout the country, a snitch isn't just used in one time, one case. They've been used several times, and the reason that happens is because prosecutors know they give a guy like McCormick a deal because they know six months down the line he's going to commit another crime. They're going to arrest him again. Okay, but the snitch is too dumb. Is smart enough to to figure that out? Okay, snitch testimony needs to be banned altogether, and four states have done so already. Thankfully, um, now and this is nothing against jury or okay, but this is my opinion of jurors. 
and why something needs to be done to get to pick a better jury. Okay. Amen. <laughs> Jurors are like just like Jerry, the common people. I think Jerry said there only three people that had college educations on, on my jury. Okay. Now you I want to ask your listeners this. This makes sense. You're you're one of twelve or one of fourteen people who are gonna listen to evidence that could send a man away to prison for the rest of his life. So you want to make, you hope to make the right decision, but you have to listen to a seasoned prosecutor, hopefully a seasoned defense attorney, hopefully an honest judge. Okay. There's a lot of legal ease involved. A lot of scientific evidence could be involved if it's, you know, if it's a DNA case and the majority of the people on the jurors, in my opinion, they, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. Okay. So, there has to be some way we, you know, we should ensure that that the people that are sitting on the jurors, uh, the jury of fact, actually know what's being discussed, have some idea what's being discussed. Okay. And another another good point that Jerry mentioned, um, and I've been bitching about since I've been home, is the lack of competent court-appointed attorneys. Yeah. And the funding. I remember in my case, in particular. Okay. I asked um, Markowski to get some uh, to get an expert to come in and testify about the physical evidence. He asked. For, he had Markowski asked Schwartz, I think, for two hundred fifty dollars. It was denied. So it's hard as hell for a court-appointed attorney to get um, competent scientific evidence, or you know, someone to explain their side of the story. Yet, on the if you look on the prosecutor's side. They'll have carte blanche. They get a blank check. You know, you're right. They get unlimited. They have unlimited resources to convict you. That's their only job. Right. That's, you know, now does that make any sense? No, no. Uh, It sure doesn't make any sense to me. Well, then it gets it. I agree with everything Ken said. I don't know how you you select a jury pool because, um, you know, you want a diverse jury pool, you know. You want somebody where people have had real life things that you, and I think I would want more age diversity, more ethnic diversity and that because someone's got run up by the cops. Someone has an alternative view. Um, but it, it's a fix is in on our prosecutor. One technique I want to tell you about that it, I, this is what I did not become aware about until after. And this, this has nothing, to, this does have to do with the, how we were presented with the crime. The, um, they knew what happened, right? They had the, the victim saying, this is what happened to me. They had all the documentary evidence. They knew that the person, um, the rapist, they said, was using a cocaine one-hitter. I'm not a drug user. I don't even know what the heck that is, right? But they would put it and he said he was wearing a mask and he's using this one hit. And they talked to other things about um, the crime, right? And they had Kathy Witcher come and say these things about Kenny. And then they had some of his friends come and say, oh, he he took um, he had one of these devices, one of this. Then they go, so they, they know what happens. Then they go back upstream and plant circumstantial evidence or rumor 
that this person did that. There's no evidence entered uh, of what Kathy Witcher said, Kenny, what their personal practice were. There's no evidence that Kenny used drugs or did anything else. But what they did was they they had witness go up and say, yeah, that's consistent with that person. Here, so, let me, um, Gary, let me interrupt for a second, okay? Sure. Now, see if you remember this. The the um, the way that it wasn't a cocaine, first wasn't mentioned as a, as a cocaine, something to sniff for, okay? The victim, and I, I have it in, in the police reports, she said that at times the, the guy had, the rapist had a hard time breathing, and she could hear some type of an inhaler. Okay. Okay, that's the way the victim described it. Linda Davis then said, well, could it have been a cocaine inhaler? Could it have been, you know, uh, inhaling cocaine? She's the Linda Davis is the one who brought that up. Well, that's point. But my point is, is if a person's got mm-hmm. asthma doing it, there's no social stigma. But if they're doing under drugs, it, it makes it even more of um, demonize even more of the, the person on trial. I agree, too. And now I just thought of one more thing I want to ask Jerry. OK, see if you remember this. Um, the expert from the crime, Michigan State Police Crime Lab testified that there were semen stains and pubic hairs found in the victim's bed. He testified that the semen and the hairs belonged to someone with type A blood. I am type O. Now, back then, I don't know if you were aware of it back then or any of the other jurors were aware of that, the, the truth back then, as it is now, or if, if you're aware of it now. If the ABO blood type testing does not match, if it's different, as it was in my case, the it's impossible to get a DNA match. Impossible. I was not aware at that time and not now. And actually, after um, I talked to Bob Hennigy about your case, I went back on the Internet, which, again, was not prevalent then, you know. Mm-hmm. So I um, went back in the Internet and found out the DNA even exists during your trial. You know, I go, did I know? And they go, yeah, it had been out there. That's the, why they had started this. You know, they had had done this. But where the heck was the evidence? You're the your state crime lab. Educate me on this. And when it's an accountant, a housewife, a clerk, an auto worker, a lawnscaping guy, do we, we're not DNA guys. I agree. And the reason they didn't present DNA evidence was because Austin hid it. That's why he hid the four pieces of evidence that would have cleared me. You know, you, you, let, you me, know. let me um, turn this off. <laughs> but, but let me let me go here, Mike. Let me tell you some interesting things here. This would only make this more strange, right? So, again, I'm a CPA. About two years after the trial, I bumped into all these cats later. But two years after the trial, I go to hire a, um, a CPA to work for my firm. And I interviewed Austin's wife, and I hired her. <laughs> and um, we're going to my partner and I at time. We're going to the interview, and I go, "Gosh, man, you sound from you know your name sounds familiar." I said, "You um, have a relative that's with the Clinton Township Police Department," and um, she goes, "That's my husband." I goes. He's a sex crime investigator. Oh, I go, man, I was on his trial. I was really impressed. He really knew what was going on. And I'm very impressed. The guy, 
And she goes, well, that guy, you know, he really worked hard on that trial. And he did this and he did that. That really made his case. So um, she worked for me for 15 years. I talked to her last week. She's still a friend of mine. <laughs> so um, that's crazy. No, it's, it's, it's crazier. They'll be crazy. That's what I'm saying. Like 10% of what's in there. What was in the documentary is all true. But there's hey, hey, Jerry. Just greater crimes against Kenny than you can know. But but, but I, hold on. I, hold on. Hold on. Let me. Uh, I got to stop. Stop one second. So she's still your friend. It has yeah. been proven that Ostin did a lot of shitty and shady stuff in this investigation, probably lied on the stand and on and on. Right? Right. And you're still friends with the wife. Have you brought it up with her? Well, yeah, she they, they were divorced. They went through a bad divorce about ten uh, years after. Well, does she thing. does she does she say, yeah, my he was a bad guy and he probably did lie? No, during... and I'm convinced she had no idea about this. Yeah, yeah do you know that, I, I'm, I absolutely convinced she, she did not know about the setup or whatever that was happening to Ken. You know? Jerry, do you, do you know if she saw the Netflix special? I don't know if she saw that, um, but um, I, I, I'll have to talk to her about it. You know, I, I think, no, you know, I, 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 I text her. She was going to go watch it. Um, her daughter has Netflix, and and I haven't gotten back since that. So I'm sure she's watched. So she's probably not a big fan of her ex. Oh no, you know a lot of times uh, relationship run their course. Of she might be a good guest, Kevin, to uh, get some good information out of her. Yeah, I don't um, think she's going to be there. Her, she, you know, the anyway, it is what it is. I really don't understand how what the dynamic was. I um, I felt like. What the dynamic was is he was trying to get a conviction uh, at all costs. Yeah, correct. There's no and, doubt about it. Like, um, here's another interesting thing, and I think this was um, after the trial. Short, Ostin, and Davis came back to the jury room. Okay, and um, the um, Tom Ostin was really kind of bumped up and all like happy and stuff. I felt um, Linda Davis was a little bit reserved, and um, Judge Schwark was just Judge Schwark, you know. And he comes out and says, wow, you know, it took so long for you guys to convict. And um, he goes, I thought you would it, you'd get it done like a half hour and 15 minutes before you take a jury for a person, and then you just get a conviction. He goes, but... Um, I couldn't let all the good evidence in. It was too prejudicial. So I, I couldn't let you see all the good evidence or the best evidence because it was just too prejudicial. When he said that, I put it out of my mind. And for the next million years, I thought, well, you know, whatever. The judge knew more than I did. You know, they couldn't let us see everything. And he said the guy was guilty. And I never felt anything about it. And then... Um, January, I think, 2017, a, a friend, it's a mutual friend of Bob Hennigan, the writer, called me and says, hey, I know this guy's writing a book. Would you want to talk to him? And I go, no, I don't want to talk to him. That the lady was brutally raped. And he goes, well, you know, um, the, the guy that you sent to jail got out. And I go, yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he got out in a technicality. And he goes, and I, I just don't let sleeping dogs lie. And so he goes, okay, I'll, I'll tell Bob and He's cool with it. 
then he called back an hour later. He goes, you know, the guy you sent to jail, he got out. There's DNA tests proving other guys in jail on that. And I was stand up. I had to hold on to the wall to keep from falling down. I'm not lying. I had to hold on to the wall. I go, what? He goes, look this up. Look this up. I went right over my computer and looked up. And I go, holy crud. And I called back and said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him. And here's another convincing thing. I was telling a client of mine currently, I was saying about Kenny Wymanko because he also knew Austin's ex-wife. You know, we both took care of um, his account. So this is uh, 2017. I said, hey, um, you know, this this case, um, we you know, it's a connection. It's about this guy sent, uh, you know, we sent away to jail. He goes, I described the guy that really did the rape, like Kenny's, you know, what, five foot 10, 180 pounds. This guy is six foot six, 300 pounds. And like, um, I described, said, yeah, the guy that really did the crime is like six foot six, 300 pounds. Right. And he goes, um, Ganser. So he knew the guy's name and I go, what? And he goes, um, I went to high school with the guy. He goes, I knew that guy was a weirdo in ninth grade. He goes, you see that guy calling, you walk on the opposite thing. He goes, I always knew that guy. So I go, how the heck does this guy, who's an electrician, you know, just I described rapist, six foot six, 300 pounds. He knew the guy's name. They couldn't know that. That guy was convicted, was, was caught chasing his girlfriend into a police or fire station one city over the day before the rape trial. They couldn't know that. Hey, hey, Jerry, let me jump in for a second. I, I got if, if I was on a jury and I was going to vote to convict, to put someone away for 40 years, which is maybe for life, um, there's two things I'd want to know. I'd want to know that that was the guy, that guy was there, and that there was at least one piece of evidence that made me sure he did that. Do you, do you remember what convinced yeah, okay. you? Yeah, okay. So um, the victim the got up and did did. Point to him, said he did it. Is there any doubt? There's no doubt he did it. That's absent all the evidence that was that investigator questioned, right? She did call him out. And basically, well, and so that's it. There's tons of circumstantial evidence, you know. Some of it was, um, but that's, but you get right to the point, and I'll admit that. I said, I don't think that there's enough um there was enough evidence to convict Kenny, but I don't know if you you have that in any other crime. Uh, absent video evidence, which we think which we think of now, but never existed before. I bet you most people go to prison with no more than an accusation that guy did that. There's did no you know that? So did tell you know, me, did you know that she was uh, that uh, she was blindfolded during the? Uh, yeah, during she the talked assault. about blindfolded. And there's a point where she took the blindfold. She see part of his face, whatever. I I just feel like this overwhelmingly choreographed. Let me just tell you some some weird things. And there's one case that I felt was like um, this lady when she was uh, raped. She said the person that that broke in her house and raped her stole two thousand dollars of money, and that her that was on a table. And Kenny was found with fifteen hundred dollars, or seemed to have fifteen hundred dollars a day or two later that you won at the racetrack. Let, let me, let me correct that. Let me correct that, Jerry. Okay. This is, this is something that always bothered me too. 
Kevin might pay attention. The victim said that she had won $2,500 bowling a couple nights before the rape happened. She was paid in $100 bills. And I think I touched on this last week because I've been in, I was in a bowling business for almost 30 years. It's, it's very, it's almost impossible for a guy to win that much money bowling us. It's on a strike ball on a Saturday night, a woman, you can't do it. And at any time, furthermore, anytime anyone wins five over $500 in a bowling center, bowling, the, the bowling center issues them a check in case they get robbed and the checks are, are, are insured. Okay. Now, this is a fact. This is what happened. She said, the victim said she had $2,500 in an envelope inside her purse sitting on in the kitchen on a kitchen counter. Correct. She also, in her statements, she said that her husband was in some kind of a trophy business. He had a stack of, of $750 in cash sitting on a counter next to her purse. She also said that the she left her wedding ring laying on the purse when she got home from a party that night she took her wedding ring off left her wedding ring laying on the counter next to her purse now the according to the police and according to linda davis the rapist knew enough to go inside the woman's purse take out the envelope with twenty five hundred dollars and leave $750 in cash and a diamond ring that's sitting there in the open doesn't touch that. Number one, that that's, sounds kind of shady to me. <laughs> and I wish when Kim Shine comes on, this is another thing that happened, another fact that happened. She, Kim Shine, when she got involved in the case, she went to Bonanza Lanes to verify if this woman had, if uh, Diane Klug had won $2,500 bowling there that night. There was, they had no records of her winning that money. Okay. Now, let me ask another thing, Jerry. And this is, I'm not, I'm not angry. I just want to ask you if you were aware of this. Were you aware that the victim was having an affair and she slept with her boyfriend that afternoon? No, I, I was not aware of that. But, but okay. Ken, I, I got some insight into that, too. Okay, I can give okay. you. Let, let me finish. Let me finish asking All my right. question. Okay. Mike, so, goes back to this one. You weren't, you weren't, you weren't aware of that. Neither was I. Okay. Neither was Mr. Markowski. However, this is in a police reports. The victim tells Austin and Linda Davis that she, she admitted to having an affair. She asked Davis. Now, if, first of all, let me ask you this, Mike, uh, Kevin, uh, Jerry, rather, I'm sorry. If you were aware of that she was having an affair, would that have possibly changed your, your vote? Oh yeah, there's okay. no doubt okay. because okay. then you 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 there there's no I I thought about later when I found that out then I go that was it was this disorienting. Okay, but that's another piece of evidence yeah. that was that was not given presented to the jury as it should be. That's, Jerry, okay. Jerry, what were you going to say about what did you find out about the uh, person she was having an affair with? Oh, um, the um. When Olsen was divorcing his wife, you know, I uh, I'm gonna say this. I don't know if I can get sued for this stuff. I felt like the um, Olsen and, and Davis were seemed awful familiar with each other, you know. And um, 
like their buds or whatever. But um, I talked to Olsen's uh, ex-wife. I said, um, you know, did she ever question a relationship between the prosecutor and things? She goes, yeah, it concerned her at times. She never had anything that she go on. And then um, it was only then she goes, you know that um, that victim, and it, by this time, this lady worked for me for probably seven years. I never talked to her about this because, um, you know, about the, the my impressions. I never talked about it. She, she goes, yeah, you know, she was having an affair and um, they, and she had been with her boyfriend earlier that night. And if DNA evidence came up, and third time, I didn't think of that. They knew DNA, but they planned for that, where they say in, the, in their deposition they had nothing. She goes, it goes, um, if it came out that, that they were going to have to put her on the stand and test about her affair, then they were going to get everyone out of the courtroom, her family, her support staff, everyone out that was not essential. Judge Schwartz was going to dismiss her. And I think he did that when she was put on the stand, saying it was going to be too emotionally traumatic to talk about his rape, which seemed reasonable. But they got people out of the courtroom in case the affair came up. So they knew about that. Markowski apparently didn't know about it. They're supposed to tell him. They're supposed to tell him. Markowski, it's in the record. Markowski knew about it, but he did not tell me about it. Well, that's that's some good. Now, listen, I just thought of something else that was never presented at the trial. And this is in the police reports. Another report that was withheld. The victim's husband... Uh, the victim's mother-in-law cleaned their house Correct. once a week. I have the police reports to back up what I'm saying. She told the police in two se- separate statements, and the statements are almost identical, she cleaned the house the day before the rape. She vacuumed all the carpets. She changed the bedding in the in the victim's bed, Okay. Now, when the when the um, state police crime lab expert testified that the semen they hear in the bed belongs to someone type A blood, I'm type O. The way Linda Davis tried to get around that was that she said, "Well, the victim's husband might have been type A blood, okay? And isn't it common for a husband and a wife to have to have sex?" Well, if you just sit back, if you sit back and think about it, sure, it's common for husband and wife to have sex. However, the husband was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for the past eight days golfing, so it couldn't have. And if his mother changed the sheets the day before, it couldn't have been his semen. So that's another critical piece of evidence that was never turned over to. Well, here is is one evidence like I thought. I was trying to go there, but let me get back really quickly there. When this money came disappeared, um, you apparently had won some money at a racetrack. So they called the racetrack from Hazel Park Racetrack guy in to testify. We never, if if they win more than 600 bucks, we make them um, give it, we send them a 99. That's right. right. And that's, I remember that happening. So I, I was the one. I said, let me let me see the 1099. Let me see it. So they, the judge did send that in there. 
Then I, I requested a copy of your social security, which you might have wrote down, your social security number. I can probably go, they requested evidence of a, of this, Ken Lamenko's name and social security number. They gave Hazel Park Racetrack the wrong social security number. So they couldn't even run your social security. And they, they, when the guy came back and says, we never gave that guy 1099. He never, by our records, won money. They confirmed the wrong social security. So he would never pop up. Is that intentional or is it a mistake? But, you know, that was put in trial evidence. And uh, I found it. So I said, I told the judges, we can't go on this stuff. But is that another evidence of intentional misrepresentation of that? Sure sounds sure. like it. You know what? I remember when that happened. I won, um, I think it was $1,431 at Hazel Pack race, Racetrack. What was right? the name of the horse? <laughs> it was it was Deliberate Injustice. Yeah, Deliberate Injustice, yeah. <laughs> my, my dad used to own uh, Trotters at uh, Hazel Park back in the day. I used to go with him in the 70s and... What a, what a what I a, remember the driver's name was Peter Wren. I could tell you the name of the horse. I don't know. Anyhow, that that question was brought up, and I did pay. When you go to Hazel, when you, when you collect anything over six hundred dollars, they take they take the money right there, or, or I, they're supposed to. Right. Right? Anyhow, anyhow, Austin had asked me if I had won any money recently. I said, Yeah, I won um, twelve hundred thirty-one dollars and forty fifty cents at the track. They, Jerry, if you remember this, they called someone from the track to come and testify. Yeah, he testified. I remember that. Now, they, I won that money about a month before this this rape occurred, okay? The man testified that I was $6, I won $6 less than what I said, okay? So they're making me out, Linda Davis trying to make me out a, a liar, because I was, I could, I couldn't remember. I was six dollars off, on a twelve. You know, that's how fucking stupid this whole I thing. I thought they contested that you didn't win anything, but I know they confirmed the wrong social security number. So I thought they, they came up with nothing. But I, I just said that's another case. So it's, it's Jerry. Jerry, there's an unlimited. They know the facts and make the circumstances fit the facts. It's unlimited. Say, it's Jerry, unlimited. Jerry, did that's you? Sure. Did they have you check the social security number around? No, I chose to do that. I said, oh. if the guys, let me let me go look at that. I chose to do that. They they oh, actually gave me that. All right, let me jump in here, boys. Uh, Jerry, have you talked to any of your other jurors since this is all no, come I, up? I've never met them. I was shocked that I was um, that they found me. I guess that apparently jurors are listed somewhere, which interesting. And you know, it's <laughs> unusual to have a juror who convicted somebody who went away wrong to be friends. But my understanding from Kenny is he thinks you're a great guy and you guys are now best buddies. Mike, let me tell you about how biased jurors are too. I had a real prominent um, defense attorney at that time. And he was- Who did? Crying. You did? Yeah, I was a CPA. So one of my clients oh, one was your a clients. Really prominent defense attorney. And- um, he was representing a dermatologist that was being accused of rape two floors up. I think Kenny was on number third floor and this was the fourth floor, whatever, right? So I'm walking out with the jury forewoman on the way out. We convict them. We think, okay, we did the right thing. And um, I happen to know from my client that the dermatologist was innocent. 
you know, he had been having a consensual affair with a woman and her husband said, and then she goes, well, he raped me, whatever. And that's what comes out. So um, we're walking out and the, the former goes, uh, hey, did you hear about that other rape that's going on right now? I said, what? She goes, where that podiatrist raped one of his patients. And I go, what? She goes, yeah, I went to a podiatrist once last year. I could have been a rape victim. And I'm going, oh, my God, if this is the people, like, if I'm as dumb as that, and then you have this logical fallacy that I went to a doctor and a doctor was a, was a rape picture, I could have been a rape victim. It's no chance for right. any person to well, get right. off. So, so, Jerry, you're saying the cards are stacked against stacked. the defense. Stacked. And, and, and the point I was trying to make is, you know, it's very unique that you guys are friends. And it's kind of a beautiful friendship. And I'm sure, and I know Kenny appreciates uh, it. Well, I, I feel like um, I, 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 uh, I owe him honesty, you know, and, and to help him on this stuff. I certainly, and let me tell you, Mike, this one thing you don't, the connection I made when I met him and it, it sickened me that I did. This lady was raped, okay? <laughs> Someone broke into her house. They tied her up. They detained her. They violated her in every way possible. And then they left an hour or so later. But take Ken. They broke into his house. They handcuffed him. They detained him. They kept him in a cell where he was under constant physical threat for nine and a half years. And that's our justice system. And you say, well, what the hell? You put him in, in, if I talk to my friends, I talked to my own daughter about this. I said, hey, this guy was sending because, oh, he probably did something else. What are you talking about? And think about this as a quote unquote civil society. We allow crimes against other prisoners and prisoners. We encourage that. We must encourage it. We as the, in the state, we regulate the temperature that they live in the water temperature, what, where they go to the bathroom, where they sleep, what clothes they wear, what toothbrushes they have, their medical care, when they get up, when they go to bed, what reading light, light bulbs. The, the, we regulate everything, but we can't regulate and protect their physical safety when they go to the bathroom, when they go to the shower, when they go to recreate. These people are getting beat up. They're getting stabbed. They're getting raped in prison. No, it's, it's, that, I, that I, is not, that's not a justice system. The, no. You know, when you send someone to prison, okay, man, you got to time out. We'll sit in the corner for eight years or nine years or whatever. But when we put them in a play where they can be physically beaten and raped themselves, that's a punitive extrajudicial thing that we're allowing to happen. And it's, it's clearly wrong by any other case. Jerry, um, I want to touch back on something you were saying earlier. So we heard when uh, Kenny was on last week that um, Detective Ostin worked on Linda Davis's uh, <coughs> judicial campaign, that they were chummy. You added some new insight that uh, you employed Ostin's ex-wife. After talking to her at length, is it your gut feeling that something was going on between Ostin and Linda Davis? It's not talking about, I it's my just impression that I, I felt like they had there were two 
There's a special relationship you know, there. And, but then I put it out of my mind during trial. I said, whatever these people are doing, it's got nothing to do with this this victim. And well, you didn't know that at trial. Person. You didn't know that yeah. at trial. Right. Right? You found that out after the fact. Right, right. Well, I right. mean, during a trial, I'm looking at it saying, this is, if I was there, if you if you were there with a co-worker, which they were, you know, different departments that a co-worker came, it would seem that you'd have. It just seemed, seemed awful familiar with each other. So, yeah. So, what is your? I mean, I, I appreciate you speaking out, and, and as, you, as you're speaking, and we're trying to figure out how to stop the madness. I mean, this was, I mean, a perfect storm. I mean, there were so many bad actors in this case. Uh, judge Marlinga laid it out. You know, from the judge to the detective to the to the prosecutor to you know, the, the snitch Markowski, uh, to the, to the ex-girlfriend. I mean, they're, they're, to, to the bad defense attorneys. I mean, everything failed in this case. I mean, nothing, uh, well, nothing went, it, nothing went Kenny's way. The police, the police department or the prosecutor's office. So, um, let me say a police department. Okay. Um, after Austin made this case, his stock raised in the police department. He had recently made a, a sergeant. He later retired as a lieutenant a few years later. I don't know if he was forced to get a conviction or if he was rewarded for getting a conviction. I really don't have an idea. I know my younger brother one time was told to arrest a, a person for manslaughter when he thought it was a craft accident. There is no he was and he was an accident investigator in Texas. And he goes, I'm not arresting this kid for manslaughter, you know. He didn't do anything wrong. I can't prove he was speeding. And his police, his police chief said, "You arrest him for manslaughter, or, or I'm, I'm removing from your job." So they transfer him to a, a worse job, and put another guy in and arrested this kid for manslaughter. And the prosecutor decided to do it. So it could have been he was directed by, um, even think, "Hey, we need a conviction here." Who knows about that? But even Carl Malenga, who I know is uh, a good guy, I've met him before and I've got nothing to say. There's a supervisory structure in the prosecutor's office. Karma Lingan, he's mentioned a document because he was a supervising attorney. But there's 60 attorneys. He's not the direct supervisor of this attorney. There's probably two layers under him where you have a group supervisor that has to be aware of this and and uh, do this. And there's probably a um, there's probably uh, there's got to be a hierarchy. Carl Domingo is not directly. No, we, we uh, I get it. We get it. We get it. We get it. Did we ever, hey, no, Kenny, did, did, Kenny, did we ever get the name of the person she was having an affair with, the, the police officer? No. All I found out was it was someone that was uh, working, worked with her. She worked at Melfire Ford dealership. Um, that's where the affair partner that's where he worked at. Uh, I, ne I was never able to get a name. I thought he was a cop. At the first, the first, um, the first thought was that he was a cop. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you how that happened. There was a detect, uh, a police officer, who worked under Ostin. Okay. Um. Um. Jer um Jerry Garnett, I think his name was. Okay. I have it in my files of his picture. Anyhow, it was this officer's job to investigate rapes or 
uh, spousal abuse. Okay, as it turned out, three of the victims, three of the um, uh, wives that this uh, officer went to got to, ended up being raped. Okay, Cornett, Jerry Cornett was the officer's name. Jerry Cornett. This Cornett is arrested, tried and convicted of raping one of the, one of the women that he was in, interviewing about spousal abuse. And I remember my dad was still alive. This cop's picture was in the front page of Macomb Daily after he got convicted. And if he looked at the cop's face, it was almost identical to the composite that the police issued in the paper. I never got to the bottom of that, but that's how the, that's how um, you know that's how this whole theory about they thought it was uh, or I thought it was a police officer who did the rape. Okay, and um, okay, so okay, I, I I get it. I, I get we don't know the name, and uh, I know he worked it, at Melfire Ford. Okay, so it wasn't a cop. I, I I thought that they were trying to protect. A police officer. That's why they didn't want to put. Uh, they didn't want to bring up the whole affair thing. That's what I it thought could, came up. Jerry, I mean Mike, that is, it's possible. It's, it's that's still a possibility. That was never disproved. Okay. Okay. But that rumor was going around that they were trying to protect the cop. And then if you look back and uh, you know how this whole scenario started, at you know because I threw the cop out of the bowling alley. Well, you know the pieces. Made sense, you know, but I don't want to. Now I'm, I'm never going to falsely accuse anybody. No, never. no, I, obviously. Um, as we're running out of time, I have one final question for Jerry. Um, Jerry, you know, I like doing these type of podcasts and I like these conversations because we're educating everybody, right? We're educating potential jurors. We're educating defense. Uh, attorneys and prosecutors and judges that we're all watching now. We're watching closer. But, you know, you were not in a good position. You know, you were, you you didn't know this was a bad defense attorney. In fact, you thought he was a good defense attorney because you yeah, complimented him. Uh, Lynn Davis was a, was uh, polished and, and, and was a good prosecutor. Uh, you thought you did a good job. Now you, you are, uh, you saw how, a hundred percent opposite the the real evidence was all these years later so my question to you is if i was going to play this tape to 12 jurors who are sitting to hear a criminal case what advice do you have for them in light of everything you've learned i i I don't have any advice. I mean, that you would hope that they, I felt like we, 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 we gave full weight to, to our ability to think, but the system is so biased. Again, I was selected beyond jury. There's an adversarial system, but the other side didn't show up to fight. His side didn't show up to fight. And I don't even know how you get a pro a pro-defense person on a rape or assault or racial crime strike. I don't know how you get that. And then um, you don't know about the evidence selected, all the battles that are taking place outside of that where you can have this and you can have this. 
and you don't know about the lies. We see this in the news today about um, people required to turn over evidence and don't do this, which happened here. I'm I'm just very suspicious the entire judicial process. So maybe that's your advice is to be suspicious. Is Super to suspicious. is is yeah. to you know it, you know and to and to pay attention what's not being presented. Um, it's, but it's, I it's incredible. It, it's you know it's. I mean, think about that, Kevin. What you know? It, it's it's what he you know. I I'm trying to figure out how this could have been, uh, you know, how he would have noticed the the flags, the red flags that were going off. You, you're, you're not, if you have a if you have a um, if you have an informed insight, you're excluded from the pool. You as an attorney couldn't go on there because they wouldn't want that. A retired police officer couldn't go on there. They wouldn't want it. They don't want, they want ignorant people. We They wanted 12 patsies that are going to rubber stamp whatever it is. It's a setup. And the, my bigger thing, as bad as all this is, is once we put a person like Ken, even if Ken was guilty, we put him, in, and the judge came back and says, oh, we're going to give this guy 25 years. We can't go in. Then he deviated from the sentencing guy. He was given 40, 60, essentially a life term on this. How the heck does that happen? But a bigger case is we take everyone and we put them into a place where this is Dante's Inferno, Inferno this extrajudicial punishment that's not contemplated in the law, where the um, jailers and that are think it's okay to abuse and set people against each other and and create a, a further hell Jerry, because Jerry, they were convicted Jerry, of a marijuana trial or or even an assault. Jerry, can I ask you something? Jerry, I want to ask you one question. Jerry, mm -hmm. can you hear me? Yeah. I want to ask you this question. Were there any members of the jury that came out right from right from beginning of deliberations and said, "Come on, let's let's go. Let's be guilty. What's the holdup?" Yeah. Anybody so, anybody pushing or seemed to be impatient just because they wanted to get out of there, out of the room? No, no. There was one man. Um, so the jury for a person, um, she said, and I and I was good. I would never have thought. She goes, um, "Hey, before we start deliberating, I want a straw vote." I just want to say what your initial impression is, and we'll just see where we stand, and then we'll start talking about the evidence. And it broke down like this. There's 12 people. Um, I think there was a guy ahead of me, she asked first, and he goes, I really don't know. I think the guy probably did it, but let's go through all the evidence. And they go to me, and I said essentially the same thing. They go to the third guy. It was funny because guys all sat at one side of the table and women all the, the majority. And the last guy was um, in his early 40s. He's a Ford worker. And um, he goes, I think the guy's guilty. I'm only voting for conviction. I will never vote for him to be um, acquitted. And it's going to be a hung draft. I will never vote. And uh, I, one of us asked him, so... Why do you think that? Is there any evidence you saw? And he goes, no, that's just my beliefs, and I'm not changing them. And it, so that was the five, of the five guys. One guy was going to vote for only conviction. Then they moved on to 
the first woman he asked, and she goes, um, well, I don't know. I think the guy did it, but we're going to have to go through. And then about the third person he asked, the guy goes, well, I think he did it because they wouldn't have arrested him if he wasn't guilty. And people are all like, what? And then they asked the next woman, she goes, she goes, well, I don't know about that. They might have arrested him, but I don't think they would have prosecuted him if he wasn't guilty. I think he's guilty. And then uh, the remaining woman just said, well, I, you know, it's, we'll just have to look at the evidence. And the jury foreman says, I really don't know what's going on. We'll look at the evidence. But she was also the person who could have been a rape victim because she went to a podiatrist. <laughs> so... You know, I, I'm not saying like any of us would have passed a logic 101 class in uh, in college. You know, Kevin, you were going to say something. Well, it just it just goes to show you the general public wants to believe the police. We we think police tell the truth for the most part. We want to believe prosecutors. We want to believe judges are good people. We want to believe the whole uh, system is trying to find justice, and that if they find a problem, they're going to raise their hand and say, stop, we have a problem. But that's not the reality that we see out there. We see police investigators who are trying to uh, further their career by making good cases and they put blinders on and they decide this guy did it or this woman did it. And they go after that and they exclude all this other evidence and they, they don't necessarily even give the evidence they find to the prosecutors. So then a prosecutor has a case and they're, they're trying a case and they're trying to win. They don't want a loss. They want to, their boss is saying, we've got a 96% success rate and, uh, and, and we're going to improve on that. So they're, they're getting pats on the back by winning cases, not by raising their hand and saying there's a problem with this case. And so I, I think there's a, there's a big lean. And when you, you, you see that statue uh, that sits in front of the courthouses of Lady Justice where she's got the, her hands kind of equally balanced. And uh, I don't think it's equally balanced. I, 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 think the, I think the scales of justice are, are tilted against anyone who finds themselves in a courtroom. And I think the, maybe the lesson of all this is that if you find yourself as a juror, uh, maybe consider the fact that uh, that the scales are tilted against this person who's sitting there. Well, that's why well, Kevin, the standard like, everything is Everything you there. said was right. There's two points I like to make on this one. Um, one, if you're if you can't be played, you're not going to be picked as a juror for there. So they're they're looking for ignorance. They're looking to dominate that stuff. Um, twice, um, like. I had Tom Osnap Christmas parties or after tax season parties. We'd have all the members of firms come and, and he came because his wife was there. And I remember uh, one time talking to him about the case. Just, you know, not, I was convinced that it was good. He goes, and he made some joke about making up evidence. But I took it, it hit me wrong. And I took it as like dark humor, you know, like, just dark humor, not necessarily that he would do that. But then I, about a year or two later, he comes to an upper and I, I, I make it nothing. Except, well, you're always going to have the evidence to convict the person. You're going to make it up if not. He did say that. Because after that time, I called my younger brother and said, have you ever done that? He goes, no, I would never do that. And, um, and so you're going to win. We've gamified this. We gamified it. And that's what Kevin said. But everything Kevin just said is there we've gamified our justice system and um the resources between defense and prosecution off the hook different off the hook Multiple well, one, one last thing i want to say now finish up if you look at 
crimes. And, and um, I know some people that were implicated in this um, municipal bribery scandal I have with the waste fund. Even the person doing the bribery got under five years. One person out of Macomb Township, that's what I know, said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to trial. He ended up getting 17 years. If you don't take what they give you, at least in the federal system, they're going to give you three years. If you don't take that, you're going to get 33 years. Hey, Jerry. Yeah. Um, me, can I add something, Mike, I just, real quick? Kevin, Kevin, I agree with what you said um, about, you know, prosecutors like to say they have a 95, 96% conviction rate. What they won't tell you is, unfortunately, what I became aware of ever since I've been involved in this work that I'm doing now, is that a lot of those a percentage of that 95, 96%, maybe as high as 30%, come from false or coerced confessions. Correct. They'd rather, you know, um, and like Jerry just mentioned, you know, the prosecutors say, well, hey, you plead guilty to this, you know, we'll do five years. If not, we'll take it to trial, you're going to do 35 years. Okay. And now, Mike, I have a question for you that just popped into my mind. And maybe we can, both, all of us can think about if this is possible. Based on hearing Jerry's story, what happened in the jury room and the, maybe the lack of interest in the, you know, jurors, um, you know, is there a way, do, is there some kind of a way where we could have some kind of a format printed out for potential jurors to make them aware of how often wrongful convictions happen, um, uh, you know, or some well, kind of tips that maybe a pro tricks that pro prosecutors might try to use or defense attorneys might try to use. Well, off the, top, off the top of my head, Kenny, that's what these type of podcasts do, number one. And I do believe that a criminal defense attorney worth his salt could have brought that up and challenged that ID much more vigorously than was challenged in your case. Bring in an expert to talk about the 38% of people are misidentified. It's now becoming a thing that people know that uh, identification in these type of situations are flawed. And you had bad counsel and maybe the counsel wasn't terrible, but the judge was terrible and only gave him a couple days to prepare for a, a rape trial. Um, you had so many things going against you. Uh, it was this crazy, crazy set of circumstances. And I mean, I, I, I think, you know, had you had a really good attorney, maybe they could have, I mean, the, the doubt is so prevalent. Put it on a chalkboard, all the, t the 20 things that we've talked about that make no sense. How could this not be reasonable doubt? But my last question, and I said this 20 minutes ago, we got to go. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, Kenny testified. He looked you in the eyes under oath and said, I didn't do this. Why didn't that work? Everyone's going to say that. You know, you have all these people. I, I think, we, I personally think um, certain people aren't going to convict. And at some point I go, there's never going to be, you're never going to have the absolute insight. And I think more likely than not. So I probably convict on a more likely than not thing than um, beyond a reasonable doubt.
So that is an error. More yeah, likely right. than not is the scales that Kevin was just saying. 50.001% is more likely than not. I'm a civil, you're, you're, I'm a civil attorney. That's what, I, that's, that's what I need to prove. But when I'm arguing to juries, you know, I want it 50.01. So my evidence doesn't have to be like this. But in a criminal trial, it's supposed to be like this. Beyond a reasonable doubt, like you don't have a reasonable doubt that this guy possibly could have done it. And this case was fraught with reasonable doubt. Um, and had a, de a defense attorney done his job, you guys would have been convinced. You guys have been thinking about it, talking about it in that jury room, which you weren't. Um, I, I think there's a setup. I, I think there's, there's more to be said on the short relationship because he seemed like a ringmaster um, signing the case to Murkowski. I don't know that. I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors in other relationships. I know it ended badly for everyone on and then, but it ended badly for everyone else. Uh, you know, uh, Olson died of cancer. Dave's had her issues. Swart later died with dementia, you know, and his son did. It's called, it's called, it's called karma, Jerry. It's called uh, karma. It's called karma. Yeah. Right. Old, we got to end. Old. We got to end right. on that note, guys. Right, um, thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, we'll continue this conversation. Feel free to email me uh, at mike at 855mikewins.com for questions for Kenny. Um, share this podcast. Subscribe to Open Mic. We will keep digging into this. We will keep talking about this. The more we educate people, the more we can uh, hopefully get smarter jurors. No disrespect, Jerry, and uh, and uh, you know get get some justice out there. So thank you all for being here, and thanks for watching and listening to Open Mic. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Kevin. God bless you, Jerry. God bless. Kevin. Thank you, Ben. Talk soon. All right. I know. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. On my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.